2007, September 21st. Today is Lecture 3, The Starry Night. Yesterday, we did a basic introduction, just to kind of wind things up a little bit, to uh, how we use numbers in astronomy, what the basic units we're going to use. Today, I now want to begin our exploration of astronomy with a lecture on the night sky. The approach that I'm going to be taking in this section is going to be largely an historical approach. There's a reason for that. What I want to have happen is I want to have the way in which you learn about this material through the course of this class to mirror how we, meaning human beings, learn this material over human history. We start with some of the most basic observations about the night sky, the things you can see just by walking outside and looking up. Everything we're going to talk about this week, and even for most of the subsequent week and the week past that, don't need telescopes, don't need spacecraft, computers, or any of the fancy technologies of the 20th and 21st centuries. In fact, they need nothing more sophisticated than a Mark I, a couple of Mark I eyeballs connected to an operating human brain. And that's really how most of us experience the sky and have experienced the sky for most of human history. So the key ideas today is what do we see when we walk out at the sky? What do we see in the starry night? Well, one of the facts that you can learn sort of as a bring away, almost like a little trivia, trivial pursuit question is that there are 6,000 stars visible to the naked eye over the entire sky. So if you could travel throughout the world and see the night sky throughout the course of a year and you were keeping track, you could probably count about 6,000 stars that you can see without having to use a telescope, a camera, or anything else. We're then going to introduce today the constellations, these figures that are drawn in the sky by connecting the dots between the stars and introduce you at least to the major of the 88 modern constellations that we use. These are the signposts in the sky. This is how we lay out the territory of who is where, when, within the night sky. We'll even say a little bit about the uses of the constellations. Constellations are multifaceted. They've had lots of uses through human history. They've as varied as simply cultural and religious roles that they play, their storytelling memory aids, their navigational aids. In fact, that's a use of the stars that continues even to this day, not just on the Earth, but we even use the stars to navigate through space. And also, it turns out, there are some interesting artistic uses of constellations. Again, this is not a class necessarily for majors. I want to bring in a lot of aspects, for example, of astronomy that you're likely to encounter outside the, how shall we say, dry scientific aspects of it. Keep your eyes open for running into astronomical themes that may show up in some of the most unlikely places. And finally, if we have time at the end, because I've used up a bit of time going through our little tech demo today, we'll say a little bit about how the names of stars are given and a few of the bright star names and where the conventions come from for that. If I walked outside at night, now unfortunately we're in the 21st century, we're living in a fairly modestly sized urban area in the United States with lots of street lights. Most people don't get to see the night sky the way it has been visible to most human beings who've lived on this planet through most of history. An interesting fact you may know, I, I believe it corresponds to people living in North America and, and Europe, but it may in fact refer to most of the world. Only one in five individuals alive today has ever actually seen the Milky Way with the naked eye. If I were to go back a hundred years or maybe two hundred years, that fraction would be close to 100%. If I go back to a thousand years, that fraction is certainly 100%. And the reason is simply that our modern technology and all of its benefits has a downside. We've lit the night and we've lost most of the stars. 
But if you go on a dark place, on a dark moonless night, and you spend over the course of a year, you can see approximately 6,000 stars if you were to move between northern and southern hemispheres. The 6,000 stars seems like a lot. Try to count up 6,000 of anything. 6,000 is close to the number of students, for example, in a single entering cohort at The Ohio State University. That's a lot of people. Think about 6,000 people all in a room. But that's nothing compared to the number of stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. The current accounting of stars in the Milky Way is something close to 200 billion stars. So we only begin to see, even in the, with our naked eye, only a small bubble around the sun of what is actually a much more immense universe. The naked eye, while it is very powerful, as we'll see over the next few days, is nonetheless highly limiting. We're only seeing the tiniest, barest fraction of the universe. Now, if you look up at these stars and you spend some time out there, and I hope, you know, in the summertime, yeah, the weather's even still good, if you can get out of town, go out to a nice dark place. One of my favorite things to do, even though I'm out working at a big observatory, if the weather isn't really cold, I, I don't like laying out in the cold, but if it's warm, I like going out, like bringing out a lawn chair or an office chair and just getting out and start just looking up. It's one of the most beautiful things I, 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 you think you can do, is just look at a beautiful starry night sky. If, the human brain is a very interesting thing. We're hardwired to recognize faces. We're hardwired to recognize patterns. It's probably millions of years of evolution and height of this thing. It's like, you know, I can eat that. That's going to eat me. It's kind of deeply hardwired in the reptile part of the brain stem. So one of the things we do is whenever you look at random patterns of things that have no order with them whatsoever, is the brain begins to sort them into patterns so it can recognize that part from that part over there. One of the things you do is like looking up at clouds and you see faces in the clouds. You don't have to be smoking anything to see faces in the clouds. It just naturally occurs to the human brain. People have done this with constellations. Every society we've ever encountered, whether they're literate or not, have applied names to the stars and have applied names to patterns of stars that fit certain pictures in their head. I've drawn here a very fanciful picture. This is from the, the late uh, Renaissance of a star map of the constellation of Ursa Major, the Big Dipper. It's one of the most familiar constellations in all the sky. We call these coming togethers of stars, these gatherings of stars into pictures and shapes, constellations. Now there is no physical meaning behind a constellation. There's no reason why the Big Dipper has to be there for a physical reason. It is simply an accident of which stars happen to be in that part of the sky at once. But because they're so easily recognizable, they become signposts to us. Just like when you walk down the street, there's no reason that tree should be there versus another one, but they become the landmarks you use so you know as you're walking to and from school, you know roughly where you are, even if you don't have a detailed map or a GPS receiver with you. So too it is with the constellations. There are landmarks in the sky. Everybody, as I said, every peoples we've ever run into have populated the sky with constellations. Here's some examples. This is one of the oldest known coherent constellation maps known. It's from the 1275 BC. It's an Egyptian drawing of the night, Egyptian rendering of the night sky from the tomb of Pharaoh Seti I. Actually, within this group, there are recognizable constellations. This is, in fact, Leo the lion, Taurus the bull. It's no, no accident that these are the same constellations the Egyptians have come down to the uh, have come down to us as through the Greek and Roman tradition. This is a man standing up with one arm raised and one arm out. That's Orion. These constellations are nearly 4,000 years old. 
Even if we go to peoples who had no contact with the Mediterranean world, here's a section of one of the few remaining codices of the Aztecs in Central America. This is from 1300 AD. This is now a much more uh, fanciful depiction of the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, a bright grouping of stars. It actually is, in fact, a physical grouping of stars near the constellation of Taurus, as seen in the night sky. It's often a test of, of acuity of eyesight if you can see all seven stars within the Pleiades of the Seven Sisters. And this is actually from one of the few surviving Aztec codices. These words that you see are not actually Aztec, they're actually Spanish scribblings in the margins as the Spaniards tried to make sense of this. The Aztecs did not have a written script language like is shown here. The Chinese have some of the most extensive star charts that we have coming down from very ancient antiquity. Here's one from the Tang Dynasty in the 7th century AD. It's a very famous chart known as the Dunhuang chart. This is actually a very nice chart from the British Library. The Chinese had extremely complicated constellations, sometimes made up of many tens or even hundreds of stars. And yet, even in this constellation, if you stare at it for just a second, oh, look, there's the Big Dipper. There's a part of the Little Dipper. This is actually the constellations around the northern pole of the sky. So even in this chart, which is from the 7th century AD, with even a slight knowledge of the night sky, you can actually see that it's not just simply a fanciful or representational view of the sky. It's a working map. The proportions are about right. The size of each dot is not exactly proportional to the brightness of the star, but the positions are right enough you can recognize the pattern immediately. This Big Dipper pattern is an extremely famous one to those peoples who live in the Northern Hemisphere. It's so famous, in fact, that it shows up in places you might not even expect. For example, slaves in the Southern United States before the Civil War, escaping from slavery into the Northern States, would follow along a line of paths through the countryside known as the Underground Railroad. A lot of those stations in the Underground Railroad came up from Kentucky through Ohio, actually through portions of where we are today. One of the instructions that were given to the slaves, remember, they couldn't read and write for the most part, was they were told which side of the river to keep on and to, quote, follow the drinking gourd. The white slave owner, what the hell does that mean? The drinking gourd was the African name for the constellation of the Big Dipper, which points out north in the ca in the on the compass. So therein lies the use of these things. A very recognizable thing can be used as a navigation aid. It's a, something that everyone can see from everywhere on the sky, and it can transcend culture because everyone sees the same sky. So these figures in the sky are composed typically of bright stars that stand out from other things. And there's some common features we can see among the various constellations. One of them is that the really famous constellations look a lot like what they're named for. Now, now I will be the first one to tell you that I cannot really see a bear in the Big Dipper. I can see a, a, a long-handled ladle or maybe a, a plow with a, an armature on it. But you have to look kind of carefully at all the fainter stars before you kind of see, oh, there's the body of the bear, the tail, the snout, and so forth. But some constellations really look like what they are. One of my favorite, of course, is the constellation of Scorpius in the summer sky. The, there's an arc of bright stars that really do look like the curved tail of a scorpion. Bright stars make up the main body. And there's pairs of stars that look like the claws of the scorpion coming out. If you learn how to spot the scorpion in the summer sky, it's amazingly, oh yeah, that's a scorpion. It's not surprising that that combination of stars 
has been called a scorpion by every people that has had either been a desert dweller or has dwelled in an area dry enough to have scorpions as part of the local fauna. So too with a reclining lion is Leo the lion, the constellation. Now, even people who are very widely separated at distance, remember a long time ago, before modern age, you only traveled in your lifetime pretty much as far as your feet could carry you, unless you were in a technological civilization that had ships or something else. But it's surprising how cultures which have been separated not only by immensity, immense distances of space on the earth, but immense gulfs of time, civilizations which have come and gone with no possible contact with another civilization in a different part of the earth, but which saw the same general hemisphere of the sky had exactly the same constellations. Now, some crazy people have said, oh, this means that visitors from outer space visited both peoples and taught one or the other things. I have no use for such ideas. That's the intellectual equivalent of grave robbing. It also lacks complete imagination on the part of the people with the idea. Of course they see the same things. Come on, everyone. After Earth rotates around once every 24 hours, we all see the same sky. And the sky doesn't change all that much even over millennia. So, for example, there are lots of repeating themes that we see, culture after culture, place after place. Orion is depicted, for example, as a human male in just about every single culture we know because it looks kind of like a guy with an arm raised about ready to bash something. That seems to be another constant of human history. Some guy with something in their hand about to bash something shows up in the sky. Scorpius, for example, as I've just mentioned, it shows up in all the desert peoples, call it a scorpion. And then there are long chains of stars that seem to sort of meander across the sky. Some people have called those giant celestial rivers. Other people have seen giant celestial snakes or dragons, or other long, thin, serpentine creatures. So a lot of commonality among these constellation figures. Let's just pick one example, Orion. Winter's coming up here. Hopefully not too soon. I actually like the warm weather. But pretty soon we're going to be able to see the constellation of Orion coming into the night sky, as will be through most of the, most of the um, season. And I see I stole this from a lecture I gave during winter quarter because it says visible in the east after sunset tonight. How about visible in the east towards morning? It's almost always seen as a human figure, right? There's the belt, the head, the raised club. In this case, this is the Western Greek version of it. Got a shield and a pair of legs. We've seen this depiction over and over again. In fact, it shows up in a surprising number of places. The man with a raised arm is a theme that can be shown over 5,000 years of art in the West. Here's a, the Flamsteed Atlas Celeste from Paris in 1766, showing the classical mythological creature of Orion about ready to do a number on the head of Taurus there with his club, the belt and the stars. An Egyptian papyrus from the 13th century BC, and one of the oldest depictions that we know of of Orion from 3200 BC, the Palette of Narmer. It's an identical presentation. The pharaohs of ancient Egypt liked to have themselves presented as the celestial man, perhaps to show their connection with the gods that they were themselves not of this earth but also of the celestial realm. And they chose as part of that depiction a constellation that is as visible to us today in the 21st century as it was in the 3rd millennium BC and even before that. Simply a random collection of bright stars that just happens to look like a human being. Now, when we start talking about constellations in astronomy, we're going to be really dealing with what we'll call the classical constellations. This is going to be obviously have a northern hemisphere bias because most of the 
knowledge we have comes from largely the Mediterranean and its surroundings. We don't actually have a lot of contact before the uh, last few centuries with civilizations or even with the southern hemisphere of the Earth. The oldest constellations that we know of appear in cuneiform tablets along with the earliest examples of writing in around the year 3000 BC. The Palette of Narmer is an example of a non-written record, but still nonetheless a depiction we can recognize. A Greek astronomer who we're going to meet in a couple of weeks, Claudius Ptolemy, who lived in the 1st and 2nd century AD, made a catalog of the constellations of his time that was then passed down through the Middle Ages and Renaissance and became the basis of the modern set of Northern Hemisphere constellations. He identified what are called the 48 classical constellations. They are all figures from Greek and Roman mythology, even like Orion, for example, is a story in mythology. In fact, some people think that the transmission goes both ways. In some places, you took a mythological figure and you found a set of stars that looked like that and you associated those stars with that mythological figure. But there are others who, who speculate that some of the figures in the sky started out as celestial figures and the mythologies were born of adding stories to those stars, not the other way around. Now, all of these 48 classical constellations are those that are visible from the middle latitudes of the northern hemisphere. So the 48 classical constellations are the ones that you will see if you go out over the course of a year at nighttime here at about latitude 40 degrees north. These make up the classical 48 constellations. The oldest depiction we know of of these classical constellations comes in a very unusual place. It's believed by many that this beautiful statue, it's actually a Roman statue, actually it's probably a Greek statue which was stolen by the Romans, and the Romans kind of was unearthed during the, the late Renaissance and ended up in the Farnese Palace in Rome. This is called the Farnese Atlas. It's the mythological figure of Atlas bearing the earth upon his shoulders. But if you look carefully at the earth, it's not the earth he's bearing up. Remember, Atlas didn't hold up the earth. Atlas held the sky above the earth in the story. So if you look carefully at the sphere on Atlas's shoulder, it's not the earth. It's a map of the nighttime sky. And the positions of some of the stars and the relation of the constellations are, in fact, one of the earliest depictions, perhaps from an atlas by a man by the name of Arato, of the 48 classical constellations. With the 16th and 18th centuries, with the development of shipborne travel over long distances, Europeans began to travel out from the middle latitudes of the northern hemisphere into the rest of the world, and they began to get into the southern hemisphere. As they got into the southern hemisphere, they began to see the sky that you cannot see from the middle latitudes of the north. And so there, too, they didn't have any classical models to fall back upon, so they began to populate the sky in the south by making up brand new constellations. And over the course of time, they made up many tens to, in many cases, a hundred or more constellations. The map makers, starting in, in pretty much in the 16th through the 18th centuries, invented brand new constellations, the first new inventions in the West since classical times. And they mixed up different themes. They didn't just simply draw from the mythology of the time. They also drew from biblical themes. They drew from modern themes. There are constellations, for example, of air pumps, which are obviously not a classical structure, showing up in the nighttime sky in the Southern Hemisphere. At one time, this was a completely, this was like... Uh, <coughs> a completely open free association game, and there were no rules, and there was no governing body to decide which constellations were going to work or not. 
So different people's atlases would have different mixes of different constellations, and everyone was vying to fill every little gap in the sky, no matter how improbable, with a constellation. Some of those atlases get up to 150 constellations, many of them totally defunct now. We don't use them anymore. And this stuff all sorted itself out. And finally, in the 19th century, we ended up with the final official 88 constellations. The astronomers stepped in in 1888 and said, OK, time out, enough. Let's get together. We've just founded this brand new International Astronomical Union as an international body to decide the names of planets and minor bodies and moons. Why don't we also decide on a common convention for sectoring up the sky into, con into constellations for the use of giving designations to the names of stars and things like that? And out of that 1888 convention came, interestingly, the 88 official constellations that we now use in the nighttime sky. A lot was gained by this. There was standardization. Standardization is always good. But some things were lost as well. One of the things that was lost was Felis the cat. Now, I don't know how you feel on the, on the pet zone, whether you're a dog, cat, iguana person, but uh, my wife's a serious cat person, and she's always been upset by the fact that there are lots of dogs in the constellations, but there are no cats. Well, apparently, a number of other people have, have felt that same way, that there should be a place for, for Moggy in the sky, and so uh, they chose this constellation Felis, which was big in the 19th century, this is a copy from an 1822 star atlas that um, happens to actually be an actual plate from 1822. I bought it as a present for my, my wife, <clears throat> then girlfriend at the time, because she was really big on the Felis constellation. I actually found this in an old map store. I've tried to look for the constellation of Felis in the sky. Most of these stars are fainter than can be seen by the naked eye. This is one of the reasons why these constellations, these new extra constellations never caught on, they really you couldn't really see them and if, unless you went where to look. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't look like any reclining cat I've ever seen. One of the rules for a good constellation turns out to be it should kind of remind you of something. Um, that does not remind me of my cat, for example. So, so this is one of the reasons why some of the constellations went defunct. They weren't good mnemonics. The most extreme example of that comes to us from the year 1627. Julius Schiller, who was an astronomer and churchman in Augsburg, Germany, got together with Johann Bayer, who was one of the best astronomers of the day, put together a star atlas, which was one of the most accurate star atlases made during 1627. This is just on the cusp between Copernicus and Newton. So all these stars' positions here and their relative brightnesses are really, really good. We can recognize this sky immediately. But Julius was a hardcore Protestant, and he was very, very offended by the fact that our sky was populated with pagan figures. And he felt the sky should be repopulated with Christian figures. So they renamed, he renamed the 12 constellations of the Zodiac for the 12 apostles, put figures from the New Testament into the Northern Hemisphere, figures from the Old Testament into the Southern Hemisphere, and repopulated the sky into a book called the Chalum Stellatium Christianum of 1627. Here's an example. This is the constellation of St. Helen and the True Cross, which is the classical constellation of Cygnus the Swan. So this one is where he took basically a classical constellation, more or less whole cloth, the so-called Summer Cross. But he turned it into, because it is a fact, a cross-like configuration of stars, he turned it into St. Helen of the True Cross. These never caught on. 
And the reason they never caught on is, ask yourself this question. How can you tell the difference between St. Luke and St. Mark? Oh, a bearded guy in a toga holding a book. Mm, that's good. The reason they didn't catch on is because there isn't enough diversity in these characters, which are mostly human characters. Okay, you got an arc, you maybe got, uh, let's see, there's the basket, uh, some basket there. I'm not sure which one. I think I made the one basket, the manger scene or something like that. This is Northern Hemisphere. Well, that's not a very mnemonic thing. You can't look at that and say, that looks like what it is. That's why it never caught on. It wasn't useful as an aid to, oh yeah, that set of stars there looks like a scorpion. That must be Scorpius. Oh, that's south now. Oh, that, there's, the, there's the Big Dipper there. Oh yeah, that's north. There's a use to the shape of the constellation that people forgot when they began their repopulation of the sky. So now we get into the question of what people use these constellations for. Why the 88 that we've got, or at least the 48 classical constellations exist as they do. One of their roles was just that. They were mnemonics, they're memory aids. And they're often used in storytelling, right? They're celestial cheat sheets. Remember, entertainment in the days before plasma TVs and stuff like that was you went outside and you listened to stories around the fire. Maybe on a summer's night you would stand outside and the local storyteller would come up and tell some of the great stories of the great culture heroes of, you know, Maybe you're a Chosa tribe in Africa, who knows, maybe you're a Greek citizen of, a of Athens in the 4th century uh, BC. You would hear those stories and they would use the sky to illustrate those stories because there would be the mythological characters of that story there, writ large in the night sky. That's why these figures are often of cult heroes or deities or various other mythological creatures like Pegasus the winged horse. They also could take on religious and ritual uses. For example, the use of constellations to find times and reckon time were used by the Lakota Sioux of the plains of North America to develop their sacred hoop ceremonial sites. If you just simply look at it during the daytime, you see random strips upon the ground. If you look at it at night over the course of the year, those strips point in very specific celestial directions. Looking at celestial alignments of buildings, the Egyptians lined their buildings up with the sky because they wanted their great temples to be aligned with the realm of the gods. The Maya did this. The Aztecs did this. We can find celestial alignments throughout the ancient world. Going one step further, the people of the Inca in South America actually laid out the administrative organization of their entire empire as a reflection of the heavens. They wanted to have the administrative use of, their, of the land has showing to have a celestial, um, celestial approval. They laid it out on celestial forms, in this case not based on constellations, but based on the annual appearance of the bright band of the Milky Way across the Andean sky. So here's some examples of some of these, some of these themes. Here are the constellations up on the left of Andromeda, a woman, Pegasus, the winged horse, Cassiopeia the queen, Cepheus the queen, and Perseus the hero about to bash the uh, great dragon who's hiding up in here somewhere. And of course, here's a nice um, classic, uh, nice actually sort of a, I think this is a 17th century fanciful painting of this. There's of course Andromeda. Um, so always got to be excused for drawing some girl with her kit loose. Uh, the queen, the king, and of course Perseus and uh, the winged horse. Now I look up at this and say, yeah, I see a winged horse, a young lady chained to a rock, a hero. And you do have to remind yourself that the Greeks were the first people to mass produce wine and experiment with mushrooms. 
Here's the Lakota medicine wheel up in Bighorn County, Wyoming. This also looks like, again, it's a round site, a couple of piles of rocks and some lines, but in fact, this is laid out on strictly astronomical lines. The other thing we can use the stars for is as navigation aids. I've already alluded to that in the use of the Big Dipper, for example, by slaves escaping from the South before the Civil War. In fact, some of the stranger constellations of the sky that don't actually make sense to us sometimes actually have their origins as navigational aids. For example, I've already mentioned Ursa Major. The Big Dipper is a way to find north. You know, my father was a Marine. He was in Korea. That was one of the things he learned was how to find north when, you know, you don't have a compass. All you got your rifle and your luck. Very good aid for finding north. If you're alone, you can always figure out where you are if you have a clear night sky. There's some other ones that really puzzled people. The faint constellation of Hydra. It doesn't really look like a water snake. It kind of lays in a funny direction on the sky. People thought, why has Hydra been such a common constellation for thousands of years? It makes no sense. Until someone actually turned the clock back on that constellation to 4000 BC using a computer and realized that those stars in the year 4000 BC, taking into account some complex motions of the Earth, actually drew a nearly perfect east-west line above the Mediterranean sky. The Minoans were the first seafarers of the Mediterranean world. The constellation of Hydra appeared in the summer. It was their roadmap. It was their east-west along the long axis of the Mediterranean. Because the Minoans were able to basically conquer the use of celestial navigation, they were the first open water sailors of known history. So celestial navigation is an ancient practice. In fact, it goes back to some of the most ancient mariners in the world. The most sophisticated celestial navigation system is that employed by the Polynesian Islanders of the Pacific. Take a look at a map sometime. Look at the Polynesian Islands, every single one of which, except for some real rocks, are inhabited by people. They're thousands of miles apart among an open, trackless ocean. How in the world did they not only get to those things by small ships, no bigger than giant canoes, but have trade networks among them. They had no compass. They had an amazingly sophisticated celestial navigation system. Their constellations laid out and told them where they were and where to sail for how long, and you could sail between literally two rocks in the middle of a trackless ocean. It's amazing what you can do because the map is above you, not below you. Here's an example of sort of the technolization of those celestial aids. This is a beautiful astrolabe, basically a way to read the stars and quantify the positions of the stars for navigation. This is actually an 11th century Iranian astrolabe. And finally, there is the position of what we'll call high art, or because it looks cool. A lot of constellations turn out to have an aesthetic purpose. Often, they look like what they are, People just sort of just got pleasure out of sitting out and watching. Say, wow, that, that looks really cool. And as a consequence, some of these constellations show up in art and literature. For example, the Egyptian and Maya decorated sky vaults on the inside of their buildings as if they were bringing into the inner part of their tomb. They were bringing some of the night sky inside and painting it on the vaulted arch of their, of their roof. Lest you think this is simply to the mythology of, of ancient peoples, Ornate Renaissance decorative sky atlases appear throughout the art of Europe. In fact, they show up in some amazing places, even including the domes and apses of churches. And celestial themes have even worked their way somewhat fitfully into modern art. 
it's kind of a fun game to play when you're looking at art and you're usually looking at the usual stuff in an art history way. Keep your eyes open to the astronomical themes that have creeped in. Remember, up to about 100 or so years ago, the night sky was one of the most common aesthetic experiences of anyone who walked out at night. Not so true here in the 20th and 21st century because of urban streetlights. Some examples. Some are merely decorative. They have a little bit of accuracy to them. You can recognize the constellations kind of in the gold leaf stars here. This is actually a fresco in the Vea Farnese. It was made called the Caparola fresco. It was made by an anonymous artist in the year 1575. It shows most of the constellations that would have been visible from the northern hemisphere in the, in the 16th century, and it's semi-accurate. We can recognize the patterns of stars, but it's not meant to be high accuracy. Much more surprising is this star map. I apologize for the low contrast. It's the best picture I can find. It's in the old sacristy of the Church of San Lorenzo in Florence, in Brunelleschi's little miniature dome in the old sacristy off to one side. It was made in the year 1422. Now, you look at this and say, well, okay, you've got to ignore the Institute of the History of the Sciences from Florence. They watermarked this for us so they know who got the picture from them. Here are the familiar constellations. This is the band of the zodiac. There's the sun, the moon, the constellation of Taurus, and there's a couple planets in there. This is no mere decoration. The star positions and their relative brightnesses are of very high precision. And in fact, as we're, I'm going to bring back this picture later in the class, the position of the sun, moon, and planets actually allows us to date this scene of an actual night sky to the very day. So it isn't just simply art. There's some real science hiding deep inside of that. Bringing ourselves more to the modern age, we don't always have so much a representational view of the night sky, but here is Vincent van Gogh's very famous painting, Starry Night of 1889, a view out, this, out the window in Arles. Vincent was unfortunately mentally ill. This kind of translated a bit into some of his art. But in fact, some of the patternings of stars here do in fact match patterns of constellations and the appearance of the night sky. And then, of course, there's Joan Miro's 1941 painting, The Loving Figures and Constellations of a Woman. There's dots connected with lines. And there's an eye. There may be a woman in there. I don't know. Okay. So constellations have had many uses. Now, star names, the brightest stars, all have proper names in the sky. We're not going to go into them or memorize any of these star names in this class. There's really no point in that in a class like this. But I do want to mention that if you look at the groups of star names that are in the sky, they carry with them a very complex history hiding in those names. If you lay out the history of the names, you lay out the history of the transmission of knowledge in the West, from the Mesopotamians to the first constellations to today, we can find, for example, that most of the stars have Arabic names. So even though they are Mediterranean in origin, they passed through Islamic hands in the Middle Ages before they entered into Renaissance Europe. And the Islamic world left their notes on them. When you hear the star Aldebaran, that is an Arabic word, not a Greek word. Most of the star names in the sky are Arabic. So one of the things we're going to be seeing in this class, I said a major theme is, where does our knowledge come from? Sometimes it has come from some very surprising pathways. Any questions from anybody? All right, have a good weekend. We'll see you all on Monday.